Okay, today my guest is Dean Paul Almeida. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Paul as a person. Professor Almeida is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick uh, snapshot. Paul Almeida is Dean and William Burke Chair at Georgetown University. Paul's research focuses on innovation, knowledge management, alliances, informal uh, collaborations across organizations and countries. He has published in and served on the editorial boards of uh, our top journals. He served as chair of TIM division of AOM. He also received Academy of Management's International Business Outstanding Educator Award. In addition to his academic accomplishments, as uh, the dean in over 30 countries, he has built six executive education degree programs and 25 executive custom programs. The Financial Times ranks the executive programs among the best in the world. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. Paul, what did you want to become when you were a child? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. But one thing I'm pretty sure I wasn't going to become as a professor. So uh, I, you know, thought my father was a naval officer. So I thought I might join the military when I was very little. As I grew uh, a, a little bigger, I thought maybe I want to do something different. And I was, I was very interested in business. It's kind of interesting. I was interested in business. I was fairly creative and innovative. So I thought I'd be an entrepreneur even though I had no idea what an entrepreneur was. It was just someone who'd do something new and different. And, and I trained as an engineer, so I thought I would be a good engineer, and then I kind of got bored of it. And I think I became a professor because, you know, when you can't really do anything, you teach. <laughs> so that's partly why I became a professor. But more honestly, I found I loved understanding things and learning about things. And uh, that's why I actually decided to do my PhD because I, this, I realized I wanted to discover more. And while doing my PhD, I learned that I actually like teaching. I didn't know I liked, would like teaching. And after coming to Georgetown, when I was both a researcher and teacher, I was sure I would hate being an administrator and a former dean many years ago, pushed me into administration and the rest is history. So I think my life has not been so much about what do I want to be, but discovering along the way what I like and what I can do and how I can contribute. Uh, what's something not on your CV, but people might find interesting about you? Um, definitely not on my CV. I'm a very family, family man. You know, I, I come from a family of seven kids. So my family always meant a lot to me. They always occupied my life. I have only two kids, myself and a dog and a wife, obviously. And I thoroughly enjoy my time with my family. I have lots of cousins and nieces and nephews and as well. It's definitely not, but that really takes a lot of my time. I, I've learned how to cook quite well because of my family. I, you know, like to do my yard again because of my family. 
I spend a lot of time with my dog. Uh, you know, she's nearly 14 years old and she's lying at my feet now, uh, very attached to me. So it's definitely not on my CV, but that's very much part of who I am, a very important part of who I, who I am. If you had to do it all over, if you could do it all over again, what's uh, the second best career path, alternative path for you? You know, I'm not sure if I've been good at it, but I think I would have loved to have been an architect. I still like uh, uh, design and space and lights and structures. I love looking at, you know, both old and modern buildings and how they use space and how space interacts with human beings. I, and even now, I, you know, I often think, what if I could have been an architect? And the other thing I, I still want to be, but I don't know when, is I would love to be a Jeff, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a judge on one of these cooking shows. <laughs> I, 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 I love good food. I would love to be able to sit there, eat really cool food and, and talk. So a little bit of the professor in that as well, you know? We're always judging and evaluating. I, I, I like food and I like different kinds of cuisine and uh, who knows, maybe I'll get a chance one day. Perfect. Um, <laughs> regrets, uh, any regrets in life? No, not really. I think my focus has always been, and I learned this from my mother, making the most of life. Uh, it's never gonna be perfect. Uh, uh, it's not about what could have been, but it's what you can do to make the most of life for yourself and for people around you. And I really don't think I ever look back and say, I wish I had done this or I wish that could have turned out differently uh, uh, because that's in the past. It's about making the most of now and the future. And I, I know that sounds a bit like a, Hallmark card, but it's not. Uh, but it's uh, but it's true. I I really don't have many regrets in life at all. Perfect. Uh, what are you most passionate about other than family? Uh, you know, I I'm I'm grateful uh, for this job, even though you probably know the job of a dean in a business school in this world is. Uh, and not exactly smooth or easy, but just think about it. Uh, how many jobs can you feel that you can impact bright, young, eager people? And I don't want to call them kids because they're from 18 to someone like 40, you mm -hmm. know, to influence, to, ma to make a difference to themselves and make a difference to the world simultaneously. And... I'm so grateful to have that opportunity because I believe uh, the world is a changing place and I believe individuals can make a difference and groups can make an even more powerful difference. And, uh, you know, there are big questions that the world faces now. And to be at a place like my school, Georgetown, in this day and age, in the nation's capital, with so many influences throughout the world, and in a small way, be able to help people carve out a future and make a difference to the environment or, you know, how technology is going to affect lives. 
or you know understand the complexity of you know business and global affairs uh, or business of health i i just think that's a privilege that's an opportunity and that's what you know gives me a lot of energy about this job and gives me uh, you know makes me feel happy about life you're one of the first scholars i met in aib uh, i was a phd student maybe first year second year phd student you've always had this extremely positive outlook what's the secret what's the secret of this positive outlook i i i you know so i think some people find that irritating right <laughs> no i find it admirable it's just i want to be elected it's just there's always something some to worry about my family find it irritating <laughs> anyway <laughs> but you know my mother was and still is she's 89 a very positive person a very positive person and uh, she could you know go outside and just laugh she'd look at the sun and smile and uh, i i'm fortunate that i've inherited some of th- those genes and that genetics or maybe it was more than the genes it was her example and uh, you know she had seven kids and lots of challenges to face throughout her life but to this day she'll tell you things so positively about other people she sees always sees the glass half full and you know and even you know on the sunday she was worried about something and then two days ago she left me a message on whatsapp she records her stuff and said don't worry things are good i just want you to be happy and i was thinking at the age of 89 you know more worried about me being happy than anything else and i hope i've inherited a little bit of that positivity that uh, embrace of life and embrace of the good we can create in life perfect uh this which gears to talk about research uh paul uh, how do you explain your research to uh, people who are not in the field who don't read our journals regularly and why your import why your research is important what's the main yeah. takeaway yeah, i i'm not sure if my research is important but l- let me tell you what uh, motivated me uh, when I, when i started doing my phd at wharton i was trying I, i you know i thought i'd got this great idea you know how when we are doctoral students you always think you have some great idea and then everyone tells you it's not such a good idea i i said i'm going to discover how knowledge flows and my advisor bruce koga told me thousands of people have looked after uh, about it you know this question for hundreds of years and you know i pulled out some books because that was before the internet you know uh in the library about you know big tomes like this about knowledge and its development and its flows and so i was forced to say okay uh this is an important topic because people have been trying to understand it for years but i have to try to so i try to say really how does knowledge flow and how does it build and more important than that what influences uh, uh, that and what are the, therefore what does it mean for firms or, or regions or countries and then you know jaffe trattenberg and henderson wrote their famous paper in qje sort of say looking at patent data and saying knowledge is localized and that influenced me a lot because then i said 
But is it really localized? Because that was an, an aggregate level. And when is it localized and when is it not? And what are the influences to this localization of knowledge? And to, to tell you the truth, we're still answering those questions, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I looked mostly at geography and communities and technological closeness. So certain uh, factors that created localness, but we're still trying to understand political factors, you know, how, how people have very different uh, beliefs nowadays about our elections or success, because we all live in small worlds and knowledge circulates and builds. So I think it's an eternal question and it's an important question that I looked at from the point of view, obviously of business and firms and technology and innovation, but we're still trying to understand, you know, how does knowledge flow? How does it build across people and organizations? What are the influences? What is the impact? And all my papers were really driven by this, trying to understand better, whether it was on alliances or mobility, whether it was in a multinational context or what subsidiaries did in regions and the relative importance of headquarters, the really understanding the sociology associated with the economics very often and trying to say, how does it help us understand firms better? So, uh, you know, I'm still intrigued and I still think we don't know many of these answers, but uh, I'm glad now lots of people have done research on knowledge influences. When I hit the PhD market uh, in 94, 95, many people said, is this really strategy? Is this really international business? Does it really matter? Yeah, no, I, I, and, and at all the top schools, people ask me that, at least one person in each school would ask me that question. Uh, I, I think uh, I'm glad I helped along with others to open up a field within strategy and international business that may not have been prominent before. Michael Lifeline would also ask, add to the question, like, what's the strategy question here? <laughs> yeah, and, so, and that's, that's fair, right? That's fair. I think we have to uh, embed our questions in narrower contexts and, and, and search for that. So uh, things that are omitted uh, from research, things are neglected from our uh, current studies that, that will be impacting the field in the next uh, five to 10 years. And I'm not talking about only international business. It can be international management. It can be strategic management. Uh, international HR, things that uh, we have not developed fully uh, because things are evolving still, yeah. uh, ideologies yeah. are shifting. Not so I, I, do, I do think this, I do think uh, our fields tend to follow trajectories which are defined very often by academia because we're talking to each other a lot and in terms of what is publishable, in terms of what you know, is manageable to reach a high degree of sophistication in our approach and methods. And because of that, and that's great, but because of that, sometimes we ignore the big questions that the world is asking where we do have the insights and tools to address. So I, I feel one, because interdisciplinary uh, journals are rarely, you know, fully respected in business schools. It's not that they're ignored, but they're harder to 
you know, say this is an unambiguous A journal, for instance, uh, we often ignore the intersection of fields, international business with law or in international business with technology or international business with medicine, perhaps, and health. And if you look at the real world, you know, how exactly did we respond to COVID? Did the private sector firms play a big role? What was the interaction between the private sector firms and different governments? What, uh, you know, did multilateral institutions? And I, I don't think we understand really the, from an international business point of view, the lessons of COVID, for instance, not that COVID's in our rear view mirror, but so I think there's a huge opportunity to acknowledge that international business doesn't exist in ether and embrace and even more than this further explore what it means in terms of its interaction with a whole host of fields from medicine to law, to technology, to international relations, to policy, to politics. Is there some work being done? Yes. Is there an opportunity for us to understand that even more? The answer also is yes. So I'd say that's one area. Two, y'all have been doing a much better job than we did in the past of recognizing that we have tended to look at international business largely from a Western and even US-centric perspective in terms, not just of data and the questions we ask, but also, you know, the issues that are raised and important. And I think now with more data becoming available, more scholars emerging from the rest of the world, I think this balance is changing. But even then, how much great research do we have, say, in Africa or really South America, top quality research? And it's very often US trained or sometimes European trained scholars go back and do you know, some work in those regions. Uh, but I, I think there's a, an amazing opportunity actually to, to actually look at many of these same international business issues from perspectives of smaller countries or countries in the you know, less developed world. And I think that will open up all sorts of avenues. And the third is, if you look at what our young people care about, right? They care about sustainability. They care about uh, uh, health. They care about the intersection of technology and politics and policy and firms, all of which are around the uh, area of international business. I think we can start looking, saying, what is the most important things in the next 10 years? Because these are going to be a critical part. And how can we, even more than before, and I've seen a definite move towards understanding sustainability much more and different elements of sustainability. But do we really address the full ESG issues, including you know, a society and the government and uh, governance and what does that mean? I, I think there's an opportunity to take a cue from uh, the next generation and say, what are the big IB issues that are going to be really important in five and 10 and 15 years? And what are the important questions we can both ask and help start answering. So there's there's great opportunity. I think uh, it's even more exciting than 25 years ago uh, because the boundaries of international business have been expanded. This is interesting because you do talk about grand societal challenges and yep. geopolitics. And I'm wondering if this is related to your unique location 
as a in, in Georgetown? Uh, is it because of uh, political influences? Uh, is it the same thing for uh, uniformly distributed? Uh, I, I, so I, I think you're right. You know, there's little doubt that being in Washington, D.C., right, uh, you, the, uh, you see the intersection of international business and policy and, and politics and even international relations, which is different, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's really true. But the more, you know, we take our students abroad, that's another influence of being at Georgetown. You know, nearly all our graduate students go out and do projects in different parts of the world. 70% of our undergraduates do it. Uh, you know, I, I think it's given me a greater insight about what people really care about beyond just what's convenient or easy. And it often is at the intersection of international business and other fields. Uh, there's just so much need to understand uh, a breadth of issues which we don't fully understand. And I think there's, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be policy. It doesn't have to be politics. It could be technology. It could be international relations. Uh, but, you know, the acknowledgement. So if you noticed over the last few years, people have started acknowledging that governments matter not just in a negative way because they create regulation and we don't like regulation, but the intermingling of governmental and private sector influences, the role of nonprofits. I, I think we have to embrace this, you know, complexity that actually influences international business and the effects, positive and negative effects we have. The, we know now that, you know, we assumed globalization was just really a one-way street sometimes faster, sometimes slower, sometimes there were pebbles on our path. But now we know it's not true. We know that there's not just severe pushback, in some ways there's reversals and re-questioning. And I think that's all good. And our students really, you know, they, they ask me tough questions like, so when you're going to a new country, you're just looking at to see whether it's profitable or not. What does it mean for the local government? What does it mean for the local population? You know, how uneven is it across different types of countries? Uh, questions that we knew existed, but we didn't really spend that much time looking at. So I, I think there's this great opportunity out there. Interesting. About and, and, and no doubt influenced by my location, but uh, I think that's uh, an advantage of my location. I mean, I normally ask about the evolution of the field and uh, most of, uh, the people I interviewed, they talk about evolution of the research that is evolving into different <clears throat> aspects of MNCs, MNEs. Uh, of course, yes. But what you're saying today is, uh, is a bit different that um, globalization, yes, uh, but the, there's a huge deglobalization and there is this new debate that people argue that deglobalization is a myth which I quite disagree with. Uh, there is nationalism, there is populism, there are countries, uh, we have discovered borders exist again. And <clears throat> how is this going to impact um, scholarship in not only IB, but related and yeah. even uh, mother disciplines? You know, I, I, I often felt this, but I didn't articulate the feelings into clear thoughts even in my own mind that in fortunately or unfortunately in the field of IB, we, we had become almost advocates for globalization, 
uh, if you most of the articles, anything which is you know questioning the advantages of globalization, either to the firm or to the country or you know host country or to the home country or to the individual, was almost an exception. And sometimes, you know, what, what, who are these crazy people doing it? Now, I think we have to embrace the complexity of globalization, which is a great boon to research and say, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember years and years and years ago, uh, you know, long before either of us were in academia, Howard Perlmutter wrote that article on the tortuous evolution of the multinational mm. corporation. And he came up with this idea of ethnocentric and regiocentric and uh, polycentric and, uh, you know, I've forgotten, geocentric. I think uh, we have to recognize that the world, not just multinationals, there are these powerful conflicting forces playing out through uh, sometimes policy, sometimes through politics, sometimes in the economics, and they're competing with us which makes an even more interesting world and even more uh, interesting challenges to multinationals as, you know, as they go abroad, you know. So as, you know, what does it mean for Tesla when Elon Musk takes over Twitter and, you know, how open is he going to be in China versus here? I, I think they, there's these wonderfully interesting questions and they are business questions because they're going to affect business and affect the way businesses impact the world. And I just think, uh, you know, the problem is uh, it's hard. Some of these questions are messy. It's hard to get clean data to, you know, do large scale empirical studies sometimes. So it might be more hard to publish. There's not always natural top tier outlets for some of this work. So it's going to be a journey. But I think if you look back 10 or 15 years from now, you will see the field of international business and you know, uh, international relations also moved more towards these intersections. Perfect. Uh, about advice, uh, you mentioned you worked with uh, Bruce Kogat. Do you remember uh, the best advice he gave you about research? So uh, I, I'll tell you one, you know, Wharton was filled with... Uh, many good scholars, you know, I was lucky, Sid Winter was my chair, we had Dan Leventhal, we had Harvard, so many just very, very, very good people at the same time. And what I found special about Bruce was, you know, he was bothered about, you know, high quality quantitative research, you know, he pushed us to do large scale empirical research. Of course, our methods then were not the methods now, obviously, which have advanced much more. But he also, just more than anyone else I saw, encouraged doctoral students, not just older faculty, to ask interesting questions. And he told me, you know, you can do both. You can ask interesting questions that are not just wrinkles on something else that, you know, and you can, you know, follow it up with solid empirical research. And I think that really influenced me early on because I kept, every time I thought of something, I, I kept thinking, if I do the perfect job, will it just be another wrinkle in the field or will it be something that I could explain to my children and grandchildren and say, you know, I, I searched for this, even if I didn't find it. And I, and so this idea of asking important questions that are going to matter to the world in the long run 
And he did it, of course, much better than me. And he looked at big, big issues. But I, I think that was one of his biggest influences on me. And he had many, obviously. And I'm very grateful for it. Uh, well, you're in a unique position again as a dean. Uh, you can see mid-career people. You can see uh, junior faculty and doctoral students as well. What are some of these uh, common mistakes that you see you should not be doing? It would waste so much of your time, efforts. Uh, I, 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 I don't know if I'm in a position to point out people's mistakes, but two, two, two things I would think are important. Uh, one, sometimes we sacrifice our passions too early on because we are told sometimes by senior professors and others to focus on what's doable and you know because there is real pressure right you get you have to have all these top journals in six years five years six years seven years depending on your cycle and publishing is becoming you know so just to be kind of instrumental and to be expedient and get things out more than and I actually think that's going to be hard to sustain in the long run, because hopefully we're going to be scholars for 50 years. And uh, that's going to, and that if you're not into something you really love early on and you really believe in early on, I think it's hard to sustain a long and productive research career. And so I would encourage uh, most young doctoral students to follow their passions. The second thing is, I think we sometimes collaborate in a convenient way. So it's locally convenient or with, you collaborate with the advisor then you collaborate with one or two senior people in your new, uh, or maybe junior people in your new school. And I think the opportunities for collaboration as we know are much greater. And early on doing a search for ideal collaborators, just because, you know, they might have complementary capabilities or you're, common interests. I know it's difficult, but the world has become much uh, smaller now. We can achieve a lot on Zoom, you know, we can, so to widen our collaborative potential so that we can do things that we couldn't otherwise do. I, I'm not saying these are common mistakes. I think these are both opportunities to think a little differently and sustain that passion, that drive, that expertise, that learning that started with a doctoral program but as to continue, I think, not just for five or six years, for hopefully 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, you know, we all want to be excited about our research. So I, I, I still am grateful, not still, maybe up to five years ago when I'd start talking about something so excitedly and my wife would fall asleep because I knew <laughs> I still had this <laughs> passion for what I was doing. And even if it didn't, you know, matter so much to, because my, as you can imagine, my wife's been hearing all this stuff, knowledge flows and competition and, you know, innovation for so many years. And I'd say, cool, I'm still excited. I've still got it. You know? <clears throat> okay, for the sake of time, what's the question I should have asked you about Evans? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think you've asked lots of, Lots of good questions. Uh, you asked me about myself and my career. Uh, you know, maybe you know, um, you know, what 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 am I most proud of in my life? And you know, to tell the truth, 
I'm, I'm glad I've been a researcher. I'm glad I've been a dean. I'm most proud of the impact I've had on my students because I students who I taught 25 years ago still come by and tell me things I told them, which I've forgotten myself and I didn't even realize. And I realized to some extent, the younger Paul, the more passionate Paul lives on in people I taught. And I, I'm, I'm so, I don't know, proud or grateful for that because uh, sometimes I've lost some of that passion and lost some of those insights. You know, uh, just very, very recently, a kid, not a kid, he's probably nearly 50, uh, came by and, and said, you know, at the end of class, they had to evaluate each other. And he, he said, I told them, be fair. And if you can't be fair, be kind. And he said, I've made that part of my philosophy in life, you know, and I'll never forget that. And I was thinking, wow, I don't, didn't even know I'd said it. I, but people who also, you know, rem remember things I taught them in strategy or IB. And I think uh, I, I, in strange ways, in spite of my many limitations, I live on as a teacher and I'm grateful for that. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, I learned a lot as always from you. Uh, it was a great pleasure again. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And thank you. Thank you for remembering me after all these years, giving me the opportunity, to, seriously, to talk with you. I always remember you were so kind. Uh, you drove me to the airport. Uh, <laughs> was I visiting as a doctor? I can't remember now. It was very early on. Maybe as a young professor. You were an assistant professor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was a first year PhD student. Yeah. Yep. And uh, thank you for remembering me and keeping in touch. I appreciate thank it. Thanks.